0: Panic at the Disco released A Fever You Can't Sweat Out in 2005. Discovered by Fallout Boys' Pete Wentz and subsequently signed to his record label, the band completed their first record before they'd even played a live show. At the time of their inception and the release of their debut record, the band consisted of frontman Brendan Urey, guitarist Ryan Ross, drummer Spencer Smith, and bass player Brent Wilson. These four friends from Las Vegas, Nevada had to delay recording sessions to allow three of the members to complete high school. Initially formed with Ryan Ross as lead vocalist, the reins were quickly handed to Brendan Urie who has for the best part of the last decade been the only remaining original member of the band. With a total of six full-length releases, the most recent two records are classified as solo albums, despite using the Panic! at the Disco moniker. Though Panic at the Disco have had a commercially and critically successful career that still continues to this day, it is difficult to imagine the current iteration would exist without the experimental early works of these desert teens. I'm Paul, and alongside me is Nick. Today on Violence and Sunshine, we're exploring Panic at the Disco. A fever
1: you can't sweat out came along at a perfect time for us, I think we were you know, right in the thick of the scene and listening to probably a little bit more heavier stuff at the time. But it is a fantastic album. How did you find this week looking back and, uh, and listening to the album again?
0: It's another classic from 2005. And I'm interested to know whether 2005 was just a sweet year for this music or whether it was just because of the age we were at. But I really enjoyed going back to listen to this. But I did have quite a lot of revelations about what I thought then versus what I thought now. The first one was, I think, track three or four, Nails for Breakfast, Tax for Snacks. I've never, ever heard it in my life. So whatever downloaded version I had of this record that it was downloaded, burnt onto CD, constantly listened to on my iPod, I've literally never, ever heard that song. I think we've
1: found this with a few bands where we didn't didn't actually have the proper full album available to us. We thought we did. We thought this was the album. And, um, you know, I had the same listening back There are a few songs, clear standouts, you know, remember them like it was just yesterday, but then others where I'm, I'm swear I'm hearing this for the first time. And that might just be poor memory or it very well might be, as you said, just a bad version where one or two songs from the album were missed off. So yeah, I, I had, it it was, it was enjoyable going back and and listening to a band that I literally haven't touched in over 15 years, probably, um, and again, another band that really a one-album band for me.
0: This was, I think, a half an album band for me. It's really interesting listening to the record because it's clearly, it's it's like two distinct records. They've stitched it together well, but the first half is basically like a bit of a punk rock record. It's, it's more guitar-driven. And then it switches over midpoint to this more like baroque piano kind of old-timey thing. It's definitely wanky, but I think it might have actually been out of necessity. I do feel like I read something about... Well, I did read something about how basically they had those initial tracks, which are that first half of the record. You know, three of them were demos. And then they went into the studio and wrote the rest of it and very much realized that they didn't go together and they needed something to stitch them together. I'm not a big fan of interludes. I'm not a big fan of intro songs, but I think they had to do that because otherwise it was basically two separate EPs. But you can really hear it and listening back, knowing that, uh, it it does kind of change the experience. I won't ever stop loving those handful of songs in the first half of the record, but it, the the baroquey piano stuff just didn't really do it for me.
1: I think my first my favourite songs from the from the first half as well, like that London London beckon. What is it called? London Beckon Songs about money written by machines. It's, we're coming across this Never again remember and again. That. These bands with these dumbass titles That we would have thought was so friggin' cool When we were young But are now just super frustrating Just call the song London beckoned And leave it at that for me <laughs> but
0: We're noticing this common thread Of just how young some of these musicians are We obviously, we spoke about Paramore's All We Know Is Falling And there's some kind of immaturity uh, to the lyrics But it resonated with us at the time Panic at the Disco were quite good lyricists What I thought was really interesting though And much like Fallout Boy Where Pete Wentz writes most of the lyrics for Patrick Stump for this record and the next, pretty odd. Ryan Ross, the guitarist, wrote the lyrics.
1: I guess that's that's a big part of pop bands. You know, just about any pop band these days, um, or for a very long time, uh, have you know m- not only the music but the lyrics as well written for them. But when but you wouldn't know it because they sell it to you so well. Um, and that's probably a point that again I find with Panic at the Disco. Not so much at the time, but now is I feel if you strip away, you know, kind of the the costumes, um, the emo hair, and some of the slightly more, uh, I guess, more rock-driven style in in that first album. They're really a pop band, aren't they? Like at the end of the day, they are a pop band who managed to kind of fit well in the emo scene, probably more from aesthetics than anything
0: else. I think they've survived all these band member changes to eventually just being a Brendan Urie solo project because of that factor. Like Brendan Urie is an incredibly talented artist. Um, and subsequently, now does write and record everything. So he always had that potential.
1: Again, pretty cool that he, I guess, has been able to continue that far. But I did, I did read a few things, and maybe it will come up as we kind of, you know, go into a little bit of what Panic at the Disco went on to do after um, a fever you can't sweat out. But definitely, members seem to have some, um, I guess issues with how constantly the band were trying to evolve their sound. They never really wanted to just sit and stick with one sound, you know, even from a Phoebe can't sweat out to pretty odd, huge transition of music style across members, couple of members drop out, couple stay on. And then again, moving forward, I didn't really follow any further, you know, vices and virtues and onwards from there, but pretty much every album I think is its own thing and a new style that they wanted to um, go with and at the end of the day the only thing tying it is um, Uri's vocals and sound. Maybe I don't I don't really know why they had this kind of drive and interest to constantly evolve and change you know that's also a reason why I probably didn't stick with them you know we liked that album got really into the first album and then listening now you know actually Pretty pretty Odd's actually a really cool album I'd never listened to it before
0: I didn't like it at the time and I'm curious cause I remember having some beef with them talking about basically like hearing the Beatles for the first time I remember just really sarcastically being like oh these guys just listening to the Beatles and now they're doing this I'm out
1: oh man it is it is it is good for you to have had that reaction though because I didn't know this album I, I hadn't really listened to Pretty Odd until this this week going back and listening to it and I didn't I didn't do any research or reading really first. I said, I'm just going to listen to a bit of stuff to get back in to the panic at the disco vibe and and see what they're on about and listening to pretty odd for the first time. And that, that Beatles vibe is so strong. It's too strong for me. There is a song on there that's called behind the sea that I recommend people go listen to. And you try and pick that that couldn't sit on a number of different Beatles albums. It is ridiculously similar. Like, to the point where it's a really cool song. It is just a, to me, it just feels like a blatant rip-off of just putting together a, a Beatles song. Basically, sit in the studio and go, let's write a Beatles song and put it on our album. And that is Behind the Sea.
0: I didn't find a fever you can't sweat out to be derivative at all. Like, obviously, there's so many inspirations. It's very theatrical. It's very, um, you know, almost like musical. And I don't, I mean, that in this sense like musical theatre. Um, it it didn't really steal from anything else at the time. I I guess in a way it could be considered like fallout boy with pianos, but I I thought it was really impressive and really unique at the time and then pretty odd was also a big delay. You know, that's a big gap 2005 to 2008 for a first to second record. It makes sense. They toured all through 2006. They wrote it through 2007 and then put it out in 2008. That's a reasonable timeline. But looking back, going from kind of age... I guess, 16 to 19 in that period, I wasn't necessarily kind of still looking for Panic at the Disco to plug a hole in my life.
1: Yeah, I don't think there were too many of the original fans from, from their first album who stayed with them for, and, and were excited by the new album being released three years later. I think the majority of fans probably had dropped off, but they'd found a way to just continue to have new fans. And even throughout all their albums, I think their their crowd and their general appeal remained quite young. Yeah, it's a transition probably from the the new metal era that came before in the 90s and early 2000s that still rely now on their old fans who are 40-year-olds being their main fans.
0: Well, we've got some contributions this week, and I'm grateful for listener contributions always. We've got some special friends here. We've got Beck, who was mentioned in the Paramore episode. Uh, we've got Beth, your sister. First girlfriend. and no, oh, not, not Beth. Yeah. <laughs> That timing was <laughs> Beck, the first girlfriend, <laughs> not my sister. Thank you for clarifying that. Uh, much appreciated. We may or may not edit that out. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely not. And then we've got Nash. who was mentioned in the Census Fail episode. Uh, In in a kind of fleeting moment, I referred to the Nash of the band being a secret weapon. The funny thing is that uh, in Panic at the Disco, the Nash of that band, Ryan Ross, actually looked like him. Um, Yeah, it's just Nash. (laughs) We definitely made sure we gave him hell about that one. But yeah, we uh, have some great contributions here. Let's listen to those now.
2: I've just been on a really fun little nostalgia trip listening to A Fever You Can't Sweat Out. I haven't listened to this album in, God, over 10 years, but I popped it on and bang, like it all comes back. I know all the words, back to front. I didn't really listen to it much more uh, post, you know, seventeen, eighteen. To be honest, uh, I think my taste got a bit heavier. Um, but revisiting now, it's a really great album. The electro stuff—it was really you know, probably ahead of its time, a little bit like that.
1: 15 years on, I still remember every single word to Panic at the Disco's undeniable number one hit, I Write Sins Not Tragedies, which understandably has racked up nearly 600 million views on Spotify.
2: This album got bought out right in the sweet spot when I was really starting to love this kind of music. I was 15 turning 16 and listening to this album, I was really surprised by just the, the melody and how they put it together and the lyrics. And so these guys and things like The Question by Emery, I just, you know, I couldn't really believe how theatrical it sounded and I still liked it. It was confusing for me. It's just so fun. This is a time we were listening to so much Screamo and honestly, it was exhausting. I think definitely for me it was Brendan's voice that first pulled me in and I was just like, wow, this guy, he can really sing. I loved his stage presence and the theatrics, like, of the video clips and the album art.
1: I can't forget the film clip with lead singer Brendan Urey's androgynous makeup look, smoky eyes, lipstick and mascara. He was the ultimate emo
2: girl's dreamboat. I listened to this album a fair bit. Um, And one thing I've realised looking back is that obviously I was kind of downloading illegally tit bits, (laughs) because looking back, I don't think I ever listened to the whole album the whole way through, which was rough, because listening to this album now, it's really well put together, obviously. It was just different, and I, I think it came for me at a time that I just really needed something new. As a last thought, I still remember getting the Myspace picture from Pod and just how much I looked like the guitarist. Um, I can't remember whether I was kind of, kind of really happy about it. I probably was.
0: The common thread there was that it was fun. People haven't really listened to it since then, but it's been a joyful trip down memory lane for these people this week.
1: It was probably the same for us, wasn't it? Like we hadn't uh, listened to them or even really thought of them again since that time, but listening back to that album, it does spark, you know, a lot of joy and, and a lot of good times and, that was an album that probably you know sat as as something that you could play at the party and not uh, bring a downer to half the group that were there you know panic at the disco songs could come on keep the vibe up everyone's having a good time you know not us emo's getting behind the uh the iPod and putting on some silver downer stain. music <laughs> yeah some silver te- as as the uh, the other, um, you know, classmates of ours, you know, put on the put on, still putting on the surf music, still putting <laughs> on the downer music, and yeah, they were right, man. Like, why, why would anyone would want to listen to half the shit we were listening to at, at a party is beyond me. But um Panic! Of the Disco worked well, and and again, it's just that sort of crossover band that far more of a pop band than anything, but some common threads that we uh we uh, touched on, and Nash is just it's hilarious because. He still looks pretty similar <laughs> now, but um, that's not his fault. He's just got nice dark hair and he's a skinny white boy, so he yeah. looks like a lot of you
0: beautiful, of guys beautiful from those boy. Bands. I do like that he yeah. mentioned downloading tit bits, not tidbits. So like that was a Freudian <laughs> slip there. But um, Beck, Beck, oh, yeah. <laughs> Beck mentioned the kind of screamo burnout, and that's not something I'd really considered, but I think is a pretty valid point. Like there was a lot of metalcore we were listening to, a lot of pure screamo going around. And so this was a good break, both lyrically and sonically.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of cool that we were able to listen to bands across multiple different genres and enjoy them all to the same extent because, you know, we were definitely more the emo kids. We sat in this little emo crew, but alongside us were the metal kids. there were just your stock-standard metal kids at school who didn't friggin' differ. And we would even try – we had mates – who were more into metal and we would try and bring them more, I guess, hardcore or metal core bands occasionally and be like, Hey, if you like, if you like that, if you like dream theater, <laughs> or if, if you like whatever you might like, you know, you know, you might like under oath or, you know, you might like this band and they wouldn't go anywhere near it. They didn't even want to give it any credit or any like, Oh, your guess that song's cool. They're just like, no, I listen to metal. I'm still into Metallica. Leave me the fuck alone. And you're like, okay, but we drifted. Yeah. All the way from kind of, black death metal all the way through to your poppier offerings like a panic at the disco or or paramore type band so it was cool we didn't really shy away from from listening to anything that was out there and panic at the disco were kind of true to that i guess
0: i think we were really lucky to have that broad spectrum of of scenes that were functionally playing live music there were gigs to go to there were parties to go to there was a lot of crossover Uh, one of the most brutal things about COVID I think like one of the hardest hit age groups has got to be that just that sweet spot kind of 15 to 18 where socializing so important and you know if you're a live musician or you you play guitar you're a singer-songwriter whatever you're creative in any way I think I feel for those people the most I don't care about VCE and high school and things like that but the social element those were some of our best years and not just because we're looking at it in hindsight we are still friends with those people we still are a product of the environment that was created then. And I'm really grateful for that. And I hope, you know, much like we spoke last week about our hometown not having live music venues anymore, I hope there is something new for these kids that they're enjoying, that they're doing. I hope they're having as good a time as we were.
1: I'm, I'm sure there's still some really creative people out there that are finding ways to do it. But yeah, just probably more that social element that would it'd just be so damaging. I hope it doesn't trickle on long-term too much, Any any long-term, you know, social damages or issues with people not being able to um to interact with their peers but yeah we were we were definitely very lucky very grateful um to have had that and let's just hope that these are uh, the rough periods we're going through now don't last long and kids can get out there and be creative and hang out again and
0: it's a rite of passage to be drinking a 440 mil can of woodstock bourbon with generic cola under a bridge in a weird suburb and i i hope that those days come back for teens soon
1: yes for sure we need more 440 woodies (laughs) (laughs)
0: um one of the recurring themes in the show so far has been kind of incidentally has been member changes and panic at the disco don't shy away from that we've touched on that a little bit they've got essentially like a classic lineup, like an original lineup. And then over time, you know, you look at their Wikipedia and that's a long list of former members and now touring members. But I asked you kind of early on in the show uh, when we did Boys Night Out, how much does member changes affect you? And you didn't have a hugely strong... Reaction and nor did I but as we're now a few episodes in you know We spoke about boys night out who have had multiple lineup changes We spoke about paramore who have had lineup changes and disputes Senses fail who's buddy Nielsen only Acceptance even had drummer changes I killed the prom queen had a different front man for every record and panic at the disco is Brendan Urie only so in light of that now that we're kind of five episodes in how much do these member changes affect the trajectory of the band? Like, what what have you kind of started to think about and observe and notice in in light of that?
1: I maybe didn't give it enough credit before um, in saying that. Oh, I don't think it really matters that much. But pretty much all the bands you, you've just covered and that we've covered in previous episodes, I didn't stick with really any of them beyond the initial lineup that gave me what I heard first. You know, the 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 original lineup that gave me the first album I heard from them as soon as the next things came out, I generally wasn't overly overly interested. Now, some of that obviously was due to just getting a bit older and moving into other styles, but maybe there was a part of that that was, you know, looking and going or reading or just hearing, oh, yeah, they've got a new front man now or, oh, yeah, their their drummer's left or whatever. And maybe that was enough for me to go like, oh, okay, they're probably not the same band then. Maybe, Maybe they're not the band I like them as. I won't bother listening to them. So I didn't really give it credit before yeah, potentially there is an element that too many member changes um, can't just just can't be good, can't overly be good to continue to have your fans interested. Um, it is quite. I think we're learning a bit too though that there's generally one or maybe one or two people that are the glue for these bands, or really just the reason why that band probably had the success it had anyway. So we've got Brendan Urey you know, many of our friends just mentioned and we've mentioned was really the reason why they they were as cool and as popular as they were. Not only did he look cool, everyone wanted to be with him or wanted to, you know, whatever, but he, he also was an amazing singer. His vocals were really, really cool and really on point. So Paramore is the same, you know, if that's just a band with someone else that doesn't have a cool voice like Hayley, then I don't think we're overly into them. So yeah, these bands probably... I still, yeah, I don't, I don't know how much of it it's really, it's, it's probably bugged me more now that you've brought it up more. How, how about you? Like, do you think it's, it, it has a big effect or not?
0: There's probably no, you know, it's, it's a spectrum, I guess. And there's no firm rule. Cause I've made a bit of a list of bands that, you know, have had no changes bands that have no original members. And even then some bands that have got interesting changes and I'll share those with you now. So some, some well-known bands that have had no member changes since kind of their debut record, the Strokes, U2, Coldplay, Ramstein, Radiohead, Muse, and Circus Survive. Like they're all really successful bands that have managed to keep their little family together. You know, in particular when you think about like U2, I don't care at all about U2, but that's an impressively long career with the same four blokes at the helm. And I think that's really cool. Um, then there's bands in our scene, and it's rare in our scene. So when you've got like Circus Survive, who have been around for a good 15 years now to have never changed members, and even through challenges as well. Like, you know, there's, they've had difficulties, they've had problems, they've had, um, you know, personal tragedies that have happened in that band and they've still stuck together. And I think there's a lot of credit to be given to that. And, and Radiohead's probably my favourite example of that. I think they're a true band where they are the sum of all parts. Yes, they've got Tom York. Yes, they've got Johnny Greenwood. But you need the other guys. You need them. Everything they bring to the band can't be just emulated by someone else. You listen to Phil Salway's drums on their own. You listen to Ed O'Brien sing. Those stand out, you know, they're important sonic elements of the band. Then you've got interesting changes like Judas Priest and journey are both bands that have basically replaced (laughs) their original singer with like cover band singers. Um, Killswitch Engage is pretty cool. Like uh, Jesse left the band, Howard Jones came in, Howard Jones left, and then Jesse came back. And they've even been able to do a single in the last year or so with the two vocalists, which I think is really that's cool. cool. That's cool.
1: That's yeah, when you that's know really
0: it's a real cool. family. Like it's, and if someone's leaving, it's for for valid issues. Um, Dance Gavin Dance is a whole soap opera on its own. They've had a solid <laughs> lineup for five records now, but the five before that was never the same lineup in a row. Um, and... You know, there's kind of strong feelings both way. My favorite record of theirs is from when they were a soap opera, but I am also stoked that they've had the same lineup forever. And uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers basically swapped guitarists with Jane's Addiction. So Dave Navarro ended up in Red Hot Chili Peppers, John Frusciante in uh, Jane's Addiction, and they swapped back eventually. Then you've got bands with no original members, like Opeth and In Flames, both massive metal bands. And then Under Oath is a really interesting one. So Aaron Gillespie is the only original member from the band. And in 2010, he wasn't even in the band anymore and they released a record without him. So, and controversial opinion, it might be my favorite record of theirs typically i would have thought oh yeah if a band's got no original members i'm not into that but in their case their specific case that was the record i probably loved the most so i don't think there's a rule i just think it is really interesting to kind of keep an eye on it and see what bands are more like a workplace or a job where people can be replaced and interviewed and yep you're the guitarist now he's out you're in and then what bands are really that kind of strong family that have been together forever there's no rule, but I'm always very interested about the inner workings of these bands.
1: You've, yeah, you've always um, kept a, a closer kind of eye on on these uh, bands' member changes. It's it's a, a lot of fans do. They they really go beyond the music. They learn more about uh, who the band members are. Or, you know, in some st- you know situations, what they stand for, what they're into, and you hear more about these inner workings of these bands. People drop out, beef that was had. Um, things like that it's interesting that the two bands two or two of the bands you mentioned that have stayed just super true in Radiohead and Cirque Survive are, are up there with some of the only bands from that era that I still listen to now like some yeah. of my favorite bands still Cirque Survive and Radiohead love them both have records from them would go see them both if they came back live to Australia in a heartbeat and they were bands that managed to keep a nice you know tight family together even though at times I'm sure it was it was hard. And a lot of the bands that didn't, you know, went through huge member changes, potentially just become, you know, one man, one person bands. I'm not all that interested in what they're doing anymore. So maybe, you know, going through this little, you know, this little kind of, uh, what, what would it be? A bit of a, a session with you, a bit of a, a look back at how important this is. Maybe it is more important to me than I thought it was. And when bands differ too much um, from where it all started, uh, they're probably going to lose me in the long run.
0: You spoke about the experimentation across Panic at the Disco's discography. And when I would compare that to Radiohead, which is unfair, but Radiohead obviously have a huge array of different sounds that they have put out over their career. Compare that to Panic at the Disco, you feel like they probably experimented and changed out of necessity. Different people coming in, coming out, that's going to have different influence. Radiohead are the same group of people growing together. And I think that's ultimately why that's, they're a more impressive band and it is an unfair comparison to make, but I think that's where I'd see the key differences. I love experimentation, but as the result of a group of people kind of growing together as necessary. Radioheads in Rainbows probably ruined Screamo for us in the sense that that came out in 2007 and that was the tail end of us listening to Emo and Screamo and things like that. That was a revelation that record, and I think that's why I'm comparing the two because I realised that that might have been the wedge that really kind of came into my music taste. Hearing that record, being able to pay whatever you want for it as well. I mean, that was revolutionary. I I think Radiohead ruined screamo.
1: <laughs> there are a few. There were there. will there are a few bands like that. Like you know, Radiohead were one. Death Cab for Cutie were one. Yep. You know, still still in more of an emo vibe, but not in the Screamo-y, You know, that we would previously. Um, you know sitting in there were several more bands That I guess more sat so than that indie scene um, That as we got older we more drifted into
0: True dat True dat
1: So do we have a sponsor this week or, or not?
0: Well yes and no So a couple of weeks ago We mentioned a local band named Born A Liar And their Hard Truth Tour uh, Now Born <laughs> A Liar were peers of ours And were good dudes But they enlisted the help of a, a manager I guess to put it nicely <laughs> who had a vision that far exceeded their reach. And before that, manager and their husband started intimidating bands and venue owners and alienating everyone in town, they asked me (laughs) to record a voiceover for the Hard Truth Tour. So I found the session file, and here is a little outtake from it. Here you go. It's on the Hard Truth Tour. The best down-to-earth, no bulldust, rock and roll band in the whole world. Born Alive will be rocking all over Australia. Oh, sorry, I'm just gonna have to stop you there. What is it? Oh, uh, the tour's not all over Australia. Okay, let me try that again. Here you go, it's on the Hard Truth Tour, the best down to earth, no bulldozed rock and roll band in the whole world. Born Alive will be rocking all over the East Coast. Oh, sorry. I'm just going to have to stop you again. Oh, what is it this time? The tour isn't all over the East Coast. All over Victoria? Uh, not quite. Come on, I've got the information here right in front of me. It says, Born a Liar will be crossing a few borders in the coming months when they head off on their Hard Truth Tour, which will see them hit the pubs and clubs of New South Wales, South Australia and Tasmania. Their MySpace header even says, Hard Truth Tour soon. Oh yeah, that's not what's happening. What, the tour's off? they've got four shows booked. Four shows? That can still be a tour in Australia. Well, one show is in their hometown, six weeks later they play in Melbourne, and then they've got two shows outside of Geelong. That's not a tour then, is it? No, not a tour. Why'd they call it a tour? No idea. Okay, let's run it back. <laughs> Boy, and liar, Hard Truth Tour, coming to Bendigo, Melbourne, and Warn <laughs>
1: Man, this stands out. This stands out too. Well, the Hard Truth Tour. <laughs> I don't think. I think many of our listeners who who grew up in in Bendigo, um, and were around the music centre time will remember this. And it is even funnier looking back now. We found it hilarious at the time, and yep. I don't want to knock the band because it's not yeah, a stab the part, at the
0: band themselves. It is. It's the manager. No, it's
1: the manager. You know, these guys were nice dudes. You know. You know. One of the one of them even you know recorded our band's yeah. first little shout um, out to Mark. Reco- yeah, yeah, he helped us put together a um a little EP, which which was a lot of fun, and, and they were nice guys, and we played a lot of shows with them, and yeah, I don't know how it I don't know how it came to be that this manager became someone they they listened to and enlisted and was going to help them with their career. Born, Born alone not knocking on them, they would agree they weren't up there with with the more. Uh, popular Or bigger bands in Bendigo At the time They've sat in the middle With a lot of us Who were You know Just trying to play As many shows as we could yeah. And and you know they, they were they were quite talented At the style they were going for They definitely You know Put on a good show And were entertaining And had some cool fans And stuff But to all of a sudden Hear this announcement Of a, of a hard truth tour I don't even know What hard truth means But we're going Hard truth tour And it consists of four shows In just regional Victoria Well one show in Melbourne I guess But
0: it was announced before they had the shows booked. And so there was this idea that it would be like 15 or 20 shows. And by the time it came to fruition, it was literally four non-consecutive shows about an hour and a half from home, like, you know, in an hour and a half radius that you could do. And that's just not a tour.
1: <laughs> it's cool that they didn't scrap it. You know, and they didn't go,
0: oh shit, we you can't after book. you've done that much promo, <laughs>
1: yeah. man, we've got the banner the banners up. <laughs> on our MySpace. Fuck there's no turning back now. Let's just go on the road and get this over with. I wonder if they had I wonder if they were deflated. Surely they were deflated, you know. This manager probably promised them, you know, something far bigger than they could they could actually, you know, come through with and you know, to end up with just four shows and still have to call it a tour and go do those shows, they probably came back a bit embarrassed as well.
0: (laughs) Their manager um, blacklisted our band uh, because she reached out to me and asked if if she could represent us. And I very politely said, thanks, but no thanks. And it was more to do with the fact we were going to be leaving town eventually. You know, we were finishing up school. We didn't take it seriously enough to you know kind of need a manager and to run that by them it's already hard enough with you know four school-aged dudes getting their mums to drop them at shows you don't really need someone else's mum kind of telling you how to be a band but she later ran for parliament uh in our town and uh did not do too well <laughs> just to, to put it lightly <laughs> i remember seeing the like the boards around town i'm just like how how have you gone from like not being able to arrange a tour to to thinking you can do politics, my God!
1: A very, a very interesting person who I think we don't need to give any more airtime <laughs> yeah, to. But I didn't a lot of people will know her. who we're talking. <laughs> a lot of people will know who we're talking about. Let, let's let's uh, let's lighten it back up a bit, opposed to talking about uh, said person. Yeah. Do you and, feel like a game? I do feel like a game. Let's go.
2: People of all ages, this is the quiz. There'll be questions. There'll be answers. There are no prizes, but this is The Quiz.
0: So basically, I'm going to ask you some multiple choice questions about Panic at the Disco. I'll ask you the question, give you the four ans- the four possible answers, and you'll tell me what you think. There are seven questions and then also a bonus round. Are you ready? Ooh, I am ready. Excellent. All right. What year was Brendon Urie born? 1985, 1987, 1989,
1: or 1991? Oh, God. I think... We briefly said maybe this was a band that was two years older than us. I was born in eighty eight. What was the one before eighty eight? Option
0: a- eight nineteen eighty
1: seven. I'm gonna go eighty seven.
0: Well done, you got that one correct. Crazy, like how similar in age they were. You know, a year older than you, two years older than me. And like I said before, you just think that age gap. Like, oh, those guys are heaps older, but that that is our age.
1: Yeah, that's weird. That's weird. That means when we were when we were sixteen, they were sixteen. Like, you know, that that's pretty cool.
0: So, next question. Which movie features multiple Panic at the Disco references? Is it Juno, The Duff, Boogie Nights, or Love, Simon?
1: Holy hell. It's not going to be Boogie Nights, because that's well before Panic at the Disco. Um, I've seen Juno quite a bit. I don't think, I can't imagine. I'm going to go the only one I I don't, Love, Simon? I think it's got to be in that.
0: Well done. Love, Simon is like a kind of of coming-of-age film about... Uh, sexuality and the main character, like part of their coming out, is like an attraction to Brendan Urie So I thought that was pretty cool. Well done. You're two from two. Um, next question Which female pop star did Brendan Urey release a duet with last year? Mariah Carey, Charlie XCX, Taylor Swift, or Ariana Grande?
1: Oh, goodness. This is only last year? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I think actually I said to you during the week that. You know, when, when this super huge hit came out um, just a couple of years ago, I'll Panic at the Disco, that is, or Brendon Urie's solo, I remember hearing it on the radio for the first time and being like, oh, this guy sounds a lot like Brendon Urie. Because I was like, <laughs> surely he's not still doing stuff. But fuck, he's even still doing um, doing music last year with a pop sensation. I'm going to go
0: Charlie XCX. Good try. The correct answer was actually Taylor Swift. And the song Taylor. is called Me exclamation mark, might be a little Panic at the Disco nod there.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's cool. That's cool. I have not heard the song, and I will probably not go and listen to it. (laughs) Yeah, it it, it has
0: mixed reviews. I'm glad you finally got a question wrong, though. I feel like I'm I'm loving it. I think I was on a run then. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. All right, question four. Panic at the Disco was originally a cover band of what band? Some 41, Good Charlotte, Blink-182, or Taking Back Sunday?
1: I think I remember reading this. And I'm pretty sure they were a Blink cover band.
0: That is correct. Well done. I think
1: every band was a Blink cover band at some point. <laughs> yeah, that's
0: it. What are the parameters of being a Blink cover band? Because Damn It is like one of the first songs you ever learn on guitar. It's like, is, it, is that the only song you play? It's like, yeah, we're a Blink cover band. We just, just know, know Damn, Damn it. it. Yeah. We also know Smoke on the Water by Deep Purple <laughs> and Seven Nation Army by the White Stripes. That's <laughs> Thanks it. for having they're, us, guys. They're the three songs
1: to be a Blink-182 <laughs> cover band. <laughs>
0: Uh, all right well done you got that one right so uh question five what does las vegas mean the meadows place of entertainment pit stop or the valley
1: holy shit um i don't think i've ever even thought that it obviously means something um i have been there and it's set in a valley of sorts i'm gonna go the valley
0: that was the trick one i put in because it Ah, because that's phoenix isn't it Oh, very good. Yes. Oh, no. Is it? Yeah. The, yeah. Phoenix is the valley, as worn on their basketball jerseys this yeah, year. Yeah, on their basketball jersey, man. Um, so Las what was Vegas the means the meadows.
1: The meadows. Not a, uh, I interesting. Think, I kind of <laughs> think
0: lush greens and meadows. Like, Not yeah. exactly Las Vegas, is it?
1: Not so much, but more of a desert out there. But um, the golf courses look pretty green there, so I don't know. Maybe
0: it's that <laughs> Thank you Water restrictions Alright yeah. Well done Oh actually no Not well done You got that well one No no. Bad done Whatever the opposite mm, Of well done. done is Okay question six Finish the lyric While she's not bleeding On the Bathroom floor Bedroom floor Ballroom floor Or kitchen floor
1: I'm gonna go With True to Panic at the Disco style Ballroom floor
0: well done that's from my favorite song time to dance i didn't ask you what's your favorite song
1: i think i said it london beckoned something about money like i I just don't like get it out yeah (laughs) yeah yeah i think (laughs) i think that um that song stood out to me the most on the re-listen but at the time i guess i write sins not tragedies when we were young it was just everyone's kind of favorite but yeah listening back now um it's kind of annoying that song (laughs) but because we just heard it too much
0: (laughs) all right right now from my count, you are four from six this next question is the last of our round one what type of beverage was brendan urie bottled with at the Reading and leeds festival pepsi seven up sprite or coke I
1: remember I, I read a bit about I think at their first ever show They were bottled as well And I think that was came from a bit of that Hatred of them being so successful so soon Even the people that went to go watch them Was like, eh, fuck off
0: <laughs> Yeah, so this was their first show uh, in, in the UK
1: Okay, okay We also witnessed a bottling um, At a Bendigo festival Were Did you we? there? Andrew W.K. played? Oh
0: my god, that was amazing you that, remember was that also the show where Andrew W.K. counted down from 100 <laughs> 100 it was the, the people <laughs> that, was that knew wk
1: yeah people that knew him and know what he's about to an extent because you can never fully know what it's he's performance about but art. W- we were entertained yeah. but there were some locals who were vividly pissed at him yeah. and, and actually went and collected bottles and they were all the angry dads <laughs> remember they were like yeah. 40 to 50 year old men who were at the back just hurling bottles at him so yeah we've we've been in crowds that have you know, been hurling bottles up. That's so fucking bad, though. That's awful that, that people resort to that. So uh, I'm going to just go. Yeah, <laughs> I got yep. a bit too caught up there. What was
0: the option? Pepsi, 7up, Sprite or Coke?
1: Uh, we're in the UK. What are these What are these guys drinking? Maybe not. Uh, let's just go Coke.
0: Ah, Sorry, it was 7up. I've actually seven got a little up. audio clip of Brendan Urie talking about that. Would you like to listen? So this was 2006, it was our first time playing Reading and Leeds. We get up there and we had heard horror stories about bottling, quite like, that's a thing in England, and we just thought, wow, that's really disrespectful, that's really shitty. About 30 seconds into our first song, which was Only Difference, the bottles are flying at us. I realized that John and Ryan at the time, they couldn't swatted away because they're playing bass and guitar, respectively, so they couldn't, you know, swat the bottles away, so they're trying to dodge them. So I'm running back and forth on stage, doing my damnedest to fucking swat them away from them. A couple almost clipped John in the face, almost clipped Ryan's guitar in the face. Before I knew it, I had swatted one away from one of them, and I turned back around, and at that moment, thick, plastic, full soda bottle, solid, and it just hit me right in the temple. I don't even remember, like, getting hit. It just kind of went white and then black and I watched the video and I collapsed and I think I was out for a couple minutes. I hope to God the people booing then were booing the bottling, not the oh. band stopping because the singer has been knocked out. And you can hear it. There's like, I believe, and then no more music, uh, no more singing. Uh, it's oh, that's, that's rough. Awful, man.
1: isn't it, man? That's so rough. Like, yeah, we we talked about our own experience, and and there were people in the crowd we were in calling out these idiots and telling them to stop. So yeah, I'll, I'll give the crowd the credit there and say that they were definitely booing those that threw the bottles. I hope that's so. Fucking awful
0: apparently it's some kind of uh rite of passage or hazing ritual at Reading and leeds like you've got to earn your stripes and fuck me as if the people that are in that audience have released any kind of meaningful music and it's just (sighs) that earning your stripes for people that haven't earned theirs i I just i despise (laughs) that stuff without getting on my high horse it's it's not fun you can't you can on this one
1: that's fine (laughs) yeah that's so bad yeah
0: well so from the main round you got four from seven well done are you ready for the bonus round Yep,
1: let's see and if I can get this back on We track. spoke
0: about the uh, ridiculous song titles, so I am going to ask you to finish the song title for me. I've got oh, three fuck. for you. Good luck.
1: <laughs> oh, my goodness. The yep.
0: only difference between suicide and martyrdom is...
1: And not even without any options? No. <laughs> All right, go again. Give it to me
0: again. The only difference between suicide and martyrdom is... Loss. The press coverage. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yep. There's a good reason these tables are numbered, honey. So the waitress
1: knows where to put the food.
0: <laughs> I'm giving you a point for that. The correct answer was, you just haven't thought of it yet. But that's far more practical. Oh, okay. <laughs> and lucky last, lying is the most fun a girl can have.
1: Eating a Big Mac.
0: Without taking her clothes off. Gross. Ooh. ooh. Just okay. gross. Any references to females in this era just show it how little these dudes knew women. (laughs) That is our game. You got four from seven in the initial round and then zero from three in the bonus Mm. round. And yeah, those song titles, man, that era of song titles, let's put it in the bin.
1: Yeah, put it in the bin, I like it. So we've mainly covered their initial album uh, in our chat so far, but Panic at the Disco actually continued on, and still to this day, uh, a Brandon Urie solo project and releasing probably five or six albums since we were into them. Did you get into anything? You know, we have kind of said that we briefly touched on Pretty Odd more when it came out, me just recently, but I was shocked kind of to see how many more releases under the Panic at the Disco name they've had since since 2005.
0: I, I kept up in the sense, like I kept one eye on them. So when something new came out, I was like, I'll give that a listen. I never hated anything that came out, but I think I was always looking to get that same feeling like chasing the, the unicorn or chasing the dragon of like, give me a song that sounds like time to dance again. And here I am 16 years later, still watching any YouTube clip of that song in any iteration of the band that I can. But no, nothing has stuck with me. None of it is bad by any stretch. What I've listened to is good. They've very much still got an audience. The song High Hopes is the song that has finally knocked off I Write Sins Not Tragedies as their most listened to song. So I think that's pretty cool. But um, no, I didn't stick with them. I, as I mentioned right at the start, I think even the second half of A Fever You Can't Sweat Out didn't really cut it for me. And so I was kind of done. But uh, yeah, no disrespect. How about you?
1: Well, High Hopes actually was that song I was mentioning before about, you know, hearing it and being like, oh, geez, this, this sounds like Brenda Nuri and not realizing at the time that they were still releasing stuff, let alone releasing it under the Panic at the Disco name still. So I know that song well. It was everywhere. I think it's clocked up over a billion listens on Spotify. That's how popular it was. Um, yeah, they're still
0: headlining festivals, they're still touring, I think they've still got pretty high record sales, uh, despite, you know, record sales not really being a thing, obviously streams, they're, they're killing it, so I think they're still doing just fine.
1: That's that's pretty impressive, isn't it, because, yeah, I just, as, as I said, I just wouldn't, I, I didn't even know they were still banned, like, I honestly had no idea they were still together, and in, in, in a way they're not, because it really is just Brendan Murray's solo project, but I guess easier than renaming it he he still finds that that name holds something and and it it shows it works you know people are seeing that on the bill at a festival and want to go people are seeing songs released under that name and still want to you know stream it and download it so that's pretty I, i wonder do you know i I wonder if any of the original members have any kind of royal- royalty still tied. Pro- I, I guess probably not because it's in name only, but I don't know. Not to any of the present day
0: stuff, um, but there is still, you know, obviously all the lingering royalties from the early days because some of those tracks are still played live and things. I know that it was a weird kind of breakup between Brendan Urie and Ryan Ross in the you know late 2000s, and Ryan Ross took the bass player um john with him and they went and started their own band which didn't last kind of much more than one record in one year and they kind of both disappeared off the face of the earth for a good 10 years but ryan ross reappeared just before covid which i i noticed a lot of bands like just before the pandemic hit were like yeah we're i'm coming back um oh we're back (laughs) you know beloved we're a band that broke up 15 years ago they were about to tour again um so many uh, kind of artists were planning on returning and he was one of them and in that interview where he's talking about his new project he said that yeah he and Brendan Urie don't you know don't talk often but they are on good terms and it definitely seemed like there was a little bit of regret there from um, kind of going going off and doing his own thing.
1: I don't know how much of that um, he maybe felt he had a choice in I definitely remember reading a a few uh, things a few moments that he that Ryan uh, had with with Brendan that he fundamentally didn't agree with, made him feel awkward. There was there was mention of a, a kiss that was had on stage that was non-consensual and, and he didn't right. like the way that that Brendan Ury sometimes I think acted around him or made him feel um, you know uncomfortable or certain advances that he didn't appreciate. So I wonder, you know that's what we've heard about. that that's what was released, even though it's only in you know small uh, small amount of information that I could find. But maybe behind the scenes, their relationship wasn't that great at the time or they just agreed differently on the path of the band or the sound of the band or even just personally had some different morals and things and uh, he felt he couldn't continue. So yeah, I don't know how much of it would have been just, I feel like I can go off and do my own thing and how much of it was him not feeling like he wanted to stick around. And back by popular demand, here's Shimfo with Greblo.
2: I've always said that uh, Panic at the Disco are the spider of emo music. You know, so like, picture this, Fall Out Boy, a glass of Coke. Panic at the Disco, a glass of Coke, but someone's gone and added lactose to the equation. And you have a sip and you're like, whoa, hello, this is pretty good. But after a few sips, you're like, fuck the milk. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I I serious I didn't know What spider He was talking about I was just like How are they like a spider That like Instantly I'm thinking Creepy crawly <laughs> For listeners Who aren't aware of What a spider is You know like It's a, a soft drink With a big scoop Of vanilla ice cream Popped in it Or Americans might know It as like a root beer float Or something My god He's kind of right though Isn't he
1: It. I thought the analogy Was great And I picked up on it Straight away I knew exactly That he was talking About the drink And he's spot on You know it's the initial kind of feeling you get from listening to Panic of the Disco is like, oh, hey, this is a little bit different. This is similar but different enough. This is cool. This is interesting. But after half a glass of that, you're just like, this is disgusting. Just give me one or the other. <laughs> you know, just, just give me just give me the ice cream or give me the soft drink. But the interesting thing is he doesn't say ice cream at the end there. He says, fuck the milk. But I was lucky enough to catch up with him just last night. And he explained, because I just, I had to call it out because I was just like, did you just stuff up when you, when you mention milk or is that how you think a spider's made? And he goes, nah. And uh, he was hanging out with this guy who that's how he makes his spider. So he literally just pours like half a glass of soft drink and then he pours half a glass of milk and he often even will put it in a blender and then drink it. So he go to, yeah, the go-to is pour tallow and milk and he makes oh. what he calls a berry smoothie. <laughs> So a few, a bit to unpack this week with Shimfo, but I love the analogy and I think it's pretty spot
0: on. Well, for yeah, for our listeners in the Philippines and Russia and Sri Lanka and even various parts of the US <laughs> where we have people tuning in, we definitely need the translation. So that is much appreciated. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about with Panic at the Disco?
1: Look, there's, there's really not for me. It was a band that um, I am glad I had... Around me in 2005 when, you know, I was 15, 16 years old and a band that I'm happy just to leave in that era and not really go back to. So uh, they didn't stick with me. Um, I don't think they really stuck with a lot of people. Generally a, a band that just created new fans in any way they could and remained popular. So uh, credit credit to them for that. But um, from my level, yeah, not a band that um, have really had any lasting impression on me.
0: My last kind of thought is is a distinct memory I have of a Panic at the Disco t-shirt I had. And I'm not sure if you remember, but when you'd leave concerts, bigger concerts, obviously in the venue, there's $45 t-shirts and then you go outside and there's someone selling them for like 15 bucks each or two for 20 or some deal like that. (laughs) And it is like paper like tissue paper material t-shirt like they are god awful the screen printing is terrible much like the first blank expression t-shirts for for that (laughs) niche reference but i had one of those i had one of the fake ones and i was an idiot i'd ordered it online so i'd also paid real money for this tissue paper t-shirt and our friend Morto just gave me such a hard time about having a counterfeit shirt. So um, I stole his green jeans and wore them whenever he wasn't home. So that was my payback for him. <laughs> just those little memories you have, you know. It's got nothing to do with this podcast, really. But yeah, take that, Morto. I was wearing your jeans and you didn't realize.
1: <laughs> well, everyone, that's it for the Violence and Sunshine podcast this week. You can head to Violence and Sunshine on Instagram, where you'll find a link to our homework playlists uh, that are linked on Spotify. Uh, They just give you some songs uh, about the band we're talking about in the upcoming episode. You can also help us reach more people by leaving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or just by telling a friend about the show and and checking it out.
0: Thank you again for listening. Tune in next week when we'll be talking about Thursday. I'm Paul. And I'm Nick. Take care and don't forget, we're just a wet dream for the webzine. (laughs)